0: This is uh, Patient Care Theory One, Unit Three, Part One B, the second half. So (coughs) let me just say something more about the Glasgow Coma Score. Okay. So. No, no, that's no. Wait a minute. Who's is this yours? Yeah there so. yeah. <coughs> Okay so um, uh, the textbook approach to assessing uh, localizes to pain that motor function uh, is a trap squeeze. Um, so did they go over how to do a trap squeeze or did they just say squeeze? Okay, so, so the approach to a trap squeeze is you squeeze for 10 seconds with steadily increasing the pressure over 10 seconds, no more than 10 seconds, right? And the objective is, with localizing the pain, is that they reach across to the stimulus. So the two textbook approaches to localize the pain is trap squeeze or superorbital um, pressure. Again, 10 seconds with steadily increasing pressure. So just, there's a notch there above the eye and there's a nerve that passes along there and you press with increasing pressure um, and they should reach across the trouble is if I'm ap- applying pressure here and they reach like this um, it doesn't tell me whether they're localizing or not if they reach like that then they've crossed the center then they're localizing if I do a trap squeeze and all they do is shrug it doesn't tell me where they are in the Glasgow Coma c- score It just tells me they shrugged and that doesn't is not helpful so they would have to reach across Uh, in my personal experience doing neurological assessments uh, uh, most people will just shrug away and that's not localizing Uh, hence the sternal rub some people have an issue with sternal rub because it is painful it can leave some bruising um, but sternal rub uh, it's much easier to get a, a hand either aside, pushing the hand away. That's moving across the center line. That gives you localized, right? So, so. Um, but if a trap squeeze, to do it properly, um, uh, it's a squeeze and a steady increasing squeeze over 10 seconds. My One of my issues with trap squeeze is a lot of medics and nurses, um, one, don't use it properly, two, are using it to rouse the patient not to measure their GCS. So if I've got someone in the in the back of my ambulance, who's, you know, doing this? I um, mean, we're talking to me, but now they're doing this, right? Um, one, I'm probably going to leave them alone as long as their vital signs are good and their oxygen saturation is good. But if I notice that their breathing is getting slower, narr- shallower, etc., I might rouse them. And to rouse them, I might do a <coughs> trap squeeze, right? But it'll be a brief trap squeeze. It'll be a gentler squeeze, and I'll just say, you know, hey, are you, are you okay? Um, and some people use it um, for extensive periods of time to rouse people you know to just you know get drunk people awake and that's inappropriate and borderline on assault so um, so even though the textbook version of GCS is reaches across to remove the trap squeeze uh, I'm not convinced from my experience and from attending numerous advanced trauma life support courses and hearing uh, the words from um, neurosurgeons and neurologists that um, a sternal rub is probably more effective. But uh, if you do a search for it, you're going to find trap squeeze or superorbital uh, stimulus. So if you're going to do it, do it to measure Glasgow coma score, uh, do it properly, uh, <coughs> or do a sternal rub. That's, that would be my advice. Okay. Yeah? So, sorry, this is you're your applying the trap squeeze well see th- that's the thing right it is different because APU, you're just doing a quick squeeze yeah that's just a quick squeeze to get a, an idea of whether they respond to pain now um, alternatively you could squeeze the finger um, and uh, even squeezing the finger there's debate over whether it should be the nail bed or it should be between the two joints here either uh, or I think is probably uh, appropriate. But you could use a, a finger squeeze for ear APU as well with a pen and a finger. Yeah. But it's a different approach, right? One, you're doing a, a more detailed neurological assessment. The other <coughs> one, you're just doing a really crude assessment. Or uh, you're using a trap spe- squeeze to rouse someone, to wake them up. But you have to ask yourself carefully, why are you waking them up? just waking them up because you're annoyed with them uh, that would be assault <laughs> are you are you just waking are you waking them up because they're not breathing particularly well and you need to rouse them to get them to breathe and to get their oxygen saturation up then good legitimate reason right so so GCS um, uh, and then the head-to-toe so head-to-toe the, the branching points are with, uh, with a trauma patient, you're going to do a detailed head-to-toe exam. And when I say detailed, uh, we're talking about a head-to-toe that should take less than 30 seconds. You know, where you're palpating the front of the head, the back of the head. Uh, you're palpating the C-spine, the T-spine, the L-spine. You're palpating the clavicles, the chest, the abdomen, the pelvis, um, the upper legs, the lower legs. And uh, uh, probably ignoring the hand and the feet. So it's not... It's really a head to ankle, but, but we just call it a head to toe because it's, a form of expression. A physical exam for a medical patient will be uh, more detailed, and I'll I'll touch on it. I'm trying not to go. I'm going to try not to go into much detail because we'll go into more detail when we talk about individual medical conditions like heart failure and COPD and so on and so forth. So, um, so for contusions uh or for contusion sorry for trauma uh some of the things you're looking for you're looking for contusions lacerations abrasions penetrations bony crepitus bony crepitus is bone gritting its bone uh subcutaneous emphysema um, which is air under the skin that wh- we might see in collapsed lungs and pneumothorax or in um, injuries to the larynx sometimes we see uh, subcutaneous air we'll talk about that in a little more detail later so in a trauma we examine the head we also look for did you, you guys didn't cover this in lab I'm assuming right yeah. oh you did mm-hmm. okay so look for mastoid bruising look for um, discoloration around the eye now there's a difference between ecchymosis and um, swelling and bruising from blunt trauma so ecchymosis is basically blood discoloration from around the eye but if you've got uh, bruising around the eye, and the eye is swollen, that's probably from blunt trauma. If you have a head injured patient with discoloration around the eye, with no swelling, that may be from a basilar skull fracture. And a basilar skull fracture, the the skull extends from about the top of the nose here all the way around and down. That's the base of the skull, right? So you could have an occipital fracture, that would be a basilar skull fracture. You could have a facial smash, that would be a basilar skull fracture. And you might see mastoid bruising and periorbital ecchymosis. It's not always periorbital. Sometimes it's supraorbital. Sometimes it's infraorbital. So supra meaning above, infra meaning below. You guys okay with the terminology? Just stop me, okay? Because I'll throw this stuff out. I try to explain it every time I hit on a new term, but, but I know it's a lot of new terms for you guys to uh, digest. Yeah. Uh, yeah so um, I would say take my notes in patient care One, look at every medical term there and look for a definition that would be uh, as, I, as I mentioned in the comms course that's probably your best bet uh, the alter- class, like, well the alternative would be to buy a paramedic textbook and we have avoided a paramedic textbook because they're American the standards are lower uh, the American text usually costs 300 bucks or more, and they include <coughs> anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, and pharmacology. And we use separate textbooks for that, so that's why we abandoned our paramedic textbook. Um, so yeah, your best bet is uh, just look at the terms that you're learning in COM, look at the terms you're learning in patient care theory one, in lab, keep keep notes of them, review them, look up the definitions of them, that sort of thing. That's really your best bet. There's no, uh, yeah. Yeah, fair question, hours later typically, not typically at the scene, yeah. Uh, having said that, um, you may spend some time, you're gonna spend some time in the hospital next semester and the semester afterwards, and you may even spend some time in a nursing home, and that's the time for look, to look for this sort of thing. Uh, you know, if you got a patient up on the med surgical floor who had a head trauma, this would be a per- perfect opportunity to look for mastoid bruising and periorbital ecchymosis, right? Um, otorrhea is fluid, uh, usually fluid mixed with blood out of um, the ears. And rhinorrhea would be uh, blood, blood and fluid out of the nose, rhinorrhea or autorea. And uh, so that's part of the uh, exam of the head. But you've got to palpate the head, and that's key. You've got to palpate the posterior part of the head and the anterior part of the head. Uh, I see a lot of medics doing a head exam, but they they palpate the posterior. They don't palpate the, the front. and so. Injuries aren't always obvious immediately. They may not be any immediate swelling or bruising, and so you gotta palpate the face to see if there's any tenderness there. And, and it's not enough to ask them, are you hurt anywhere in the face? Because in a, in a car crash, for example, or a ski uh, incident, uh, people often don't feel pain in certain areas until much later, right? So you have to palpate to elicit pain. So neck, we check the uh, cervical spine, the T-spine, the L-spine and sometimes the best time to do that is when uh, when I do my head to toe exam I'll always palpate the C-spine but um, uh, at the first opportunity maybe when you roll the patient to one side and then roll them back onto the board when you roll them on the their side go down the entire spine and uh, apply fairly firm pressure on the T and L spine. Um, uh, we look at the neck veins So normally in a sitting person, the neck veins will be flat, they won't be visible. (coughs) If you take a deep breath and try to bear down, you'll be able to get your neck veins to, uh, your jugular veins to stick out. Um, When people lie flat on their back, sometimes their neck veins are visible, their jugular, external jugular veins are visible. Um, But in conditions, for example, where um, someone has a tension pneumothorax or a cardiac tamponade, which is fluid around the heart, uh, you'll see distended neck veins. And uh, so distended neck veins would be a concerning sign. We palpate the trachea to see if it's midline. Uh, again, tracheal deviation is not a common finding, even to trauma patients. The chest, uh, I palpate the, uh, the clavicles and the chest. We feel for subcutaneous emphysema. We look for symmetry. And the general rule to all assessments is um, Inspect, <coughs> auscultate, palpate, in that order. So inspect, look at it. Auscultate, and palpate, in that order. Uh, so when you when you palpate, uh, if you If you're pretty certain you're dealing with a chest trauma you're feeling for air under the tissues uh, that's a sign of a pneumothorax and uh, not all pneumothoraces have air under the tissue but some do and what it feels like is it feels like Rice Krispies under the skin it feels actually like Rice Krispies yeah yeah it is weird if you um, uh, I used to, when I was teaching in the lab, I would take a little baggie of Rice Krispies and slip it under the plastic skin of the mannequin, and when you palpate it, that's what it feels like. It's kind of a subtle, distant sound, yeah. How do they get, like, the air out? This, um, out of the tissue? Yeah. Um, they, they, don't, they don't get the air out, the air just um, absorb absorbs eventually, yeah, just okay. over time. Yeah, so you repair the injury, whatever the injury is to yeah, the lung. Then the air will, like, re- it'll absorb, yeah. It, reabsor- it reabsorbs over time yeah yeah crepitus so um crepitus you can have crepitus from bone against bone some people refer to subcutaneous emphysema as crepitus as well Uh, but uh, when i think crepitus i think bone bone grating on bone the abdomen so we're looking for uh distension we're looking for injuries we're looking for bruising we're looking for lacerations that sort of thing and then we're palpating for tenderness or rigidity a rigid abdomen and trauma would suggest a significant in inter- intra-abdominal bleed and that would be life-threatening the pelvis so you can lose you can lose your entire blood volume uh, not just in your chest and abdomen but in your pelvis as well uh, there's uh, very large vessels going through there and uh, so a um, a pelvic fracture when you palpate the pelvis and I'm assuming you've done this in a secondary assessment in the lab probably to the pelvis and uh, were you taught to do a push push down on the iliac crest Uh, a push in yeah so yeah you can do one of two things you can do a push down push in and sort of lift up and squeeze or you can press on the symphysis pubis so on the pubic bone if you press on the pubic bone uh, you should let the patient know what you're doing Mm -hmm. um, just so they don't think you're up to funny business Um, And sometimes what I'll do is I'll put the palm of the hand above the pubic bone the bladder and sort of push my way till I find the pubic bone uh, and then push down on it Uh, now most patients with serious trauma don't really care uh, but uh, I'll explain what I'm doing I'll do it in front of my partner as a witness just because today being the way things are uh, you know you never know how people are gonna react to that sort of thing. And we wanna make sure you palpate all four limbs. Uh, for injuries, for pulses, for uh, neuro deficits. <coughs> so with the neurodeficits we've already done um, typically with the GCS, but uh, you might wanna pursue that a little bit further if they've got, say, a leg injury. You know, uh, I would say to them, uh, can you wiggle your toes for me? Do you have any numbness or tingling in this leg or below your injury? Can you feel me touching here, you hear on the foot? Yeah, first name? Liam. Liam, thanks. Uh, For the abdomen, before palpating, should you be auscultating? Uh, We don't auscultate the abdomen, no. No. So uh, inspection uh, and palpation for the abdomen. Uh, I'll tell you why. Now in hospital, they may auscultate the abdomen. Um, There's no real value to auscultating the abdomen in the out-of-hospital setting. Um, So for example, Absent bowel sounds would be a worrisome finding, but if you want to know if there's absent bowel sounds by auscultation, <coughs> you've got to auscultate for at least 20 minutes. We don't have that kind of time, right? So, so there's really no value to auscultation. Um, there's been debate too about, you know, um, did you guys talk about percussion? No, okay, so percussion is, you've seen doctors do this where they, they put a finger on something and they tap the knuckle like that, and you can hear like, a Um, If someone has a collapsed lung, you might hear um, a higher pitched resonant sound over that area and a duller sound over the healthy lung. Uh, But we work in an environment where it's usually pretty noisy. It's not calm, quiet, well lit, uh, like they have in the hospital. So um, I don't personally see any value to percussion. And uh, I don't, uh, and I think uh, 99% of my EMS colleagues would would, agree with me that there's no value to auscultating the belly um. okay so uh, with medical calls uh, we look at neck veins and um, I wouldn't say I look at neck veins on all calls but if I have a patient in whom I suspect heart failure uh, or a spontaneous collapse lung pneumothorax Um, or a pulmonary embolus so a clot in one of the vessels in the lung Um, those things can cause blood to back up from the right heart into the systemic circulation and you can get distended neck veins so I look for that as a sign of uh, some sort of obstruction either heart failure or pulmonary embolus or pneumothorax or something like that or even a cardiac tamponade where we have fluid surrounding the the heart and um, um, uh, in someone who's sitting, and all these patients I just described, they'll all be semi-sitting, um, the v- neck veins shouldn't be visible. Uh, but if they're visible up to the angle of the jaw here, that would be neck vein distention. And that's just one little piece of evidence that says, should say to you, okay, you know, why do they have distended uh, neck veins? That's a little unusual. And um, as I said before, why do we encourage you to do is look at people more closely don't stare so you look creepy but you know look at them more closely uh, and look for things like that like if I'm walking in a public place and some uh, old guy passes me and I see his neck veins I notice right I'm thinking man that guy's got jugs right (laughs) and I'm talking jugular veins yeah so here again, you gotta be careful of your language, right? Uh, advanced care paramedics can stick an IV in the external jugular vein. So sometimes, uh, you know, a casual conversation between medics will be, you know, were you able to start an IV? Sh- and I'll say she had no veins in her hand or her arms. And he said, well, what were jugs like? Um, anyone listening into that conversation might take that the wrong way, but uh, what he means is external jugular veins, right? So um, so look at people. Uh, the chest uh, for medical medical call, plus or minus. So if I have someone chest pain, I think it's cardiac ischemia. I'm going to palpate the chest because I want to see if that pain is reproducible by palpation because maybe it's not heart, maybe it's uh, costochondrial, maybe it's skeletal, maybe it's muscular. Right? So we're sort of doing the rule in and out. Um, abdomen, and a lot of medical patients will be assessing the abdomen, particularly abdominal pain, but even chest pain. Um, will Sometimes people will have um, an abdominal pathology uh, where the pain is referred into the chest. So if I palpate the abdomen and that chest discomfort is reproducible by palpation of say, the right or left upper quadrant, then I, then I know I may be dealing with an abdominal issue, not a uh, thoracic issue, yeah. Uh, means uh, yeah sorry plus or minus means um, it may be applicable may not be applicable that's just my way of saying that yeah so so um, um, let me think if I have uh, if I have a patient with a history of clots in their leg and they've got a clot in their leg and their calf is uh, very painful that's a medical call I'm probably not going to palpate the abdomen, hence the plus or minus. So in this case, it would be a minus, right? So, so it's a judgment call. Um, uh, and the abdomen should be soft, should be non-tender, should be non-distended, and uh, there shouldn't be a pulsatile mass. But uh, a pulsatile mass in and around the peri-umbilical area, around the belly button, might suggest ab- you know, abdominal pain, uh, especially abdominal pain that feels like a tearing sensation and radiates to the back With a pulsatile mass would be highly suggestive of an abdominal aortic aneurysm that's tearing. And that would be life threatening. That's a ticking time bomb. So I'm gonna get that out of there with that guy. Now, if they had a pulsatile mass, I wouldn't palpate it. That's like, you know. I don't know what it's like, trying to think. anyway um, i wouldn 't palpate it because that uh, might not be good for them, and would probably look bad on my resume if it if I popped their aneurysm because uh, they would exsanguinate on the spot from that from a ruptured aneurysm like breaking the dam. yeah it 's more like bursting a bubble that 's thinned out right that's you know i 'm um, trying to think of a good analogy, but yeah, it is like breaking a dam in a sense Uh, because all that blood is contained within that vessel, but the vessel is is distended out, and it's thinned out, and it's delicate, right? So uh, I don't want to blow it. Um, If I transport someone from one hospital to another and they have a AAA, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, or a thoracic aortic aneurysm, I sure as hell don't want them to sneeze or cough, (laughs) right? Uh, And I had a guy once who, uh, I can't remember if he sneezed or coughed. I think he coughed. and um, we flew him into Toronto. We landed on the roof of sick kids, We got into the elevator, and normally we were taking him to Toronto General. Normally we go, <coughs> the tunnel's underground over to Toronto General, but uh, he coughed or sneezed or something in the elevator, and then he had this look in his eye like, oh crap, what have I done? And sure enough, he ruptured his aneurysm, and his level of consciousness dropped, his, level, his blood pressure dropped, his heart rate went up, and um, we ran across Girard Street with our stretcher in him, which put us all in danger because there're cabs all over the place there, right? So it's a life-threatening, uh, it's a life-threatening adventure trying to go across Gerard Street with a guy on a stretcher. And uh, uh, we got him into the merge, and I said he coughed. I think his triple A ruptured, and the doc said don't stop here, we're going to the OR. He turned to one of the nurses and said, call the OR, tell them we're on our way up. So a doc and two nurses came with us and went, we went on the elevator and this guy was crashing. And um, we moved him over from our stretcher onto the bed and uh, it took all of maybe 30 seconds for the anesthetist to put him to sleep. And less than a minute, they cut him open and they cross clamped his aorta and we hadn't even, I hadn't even pulled the straps back f- from hanging over the side of the stretcher onto the stretcher and moved the stretcher away but it, it was they were lightning fast and they repaired this guy as they ordered and he did fine but it was amazing that's how frightening a triple a is it's it's like a bomb in here it's like it's like a grenade and the pin's been pulled and there's a little bit of tissue pressing against the pinhole to keep it from exploding, that's what it's like. That's an analogy, <laughs> right? So, it's ready to go kaboom. So, so you can have a guy who's awake and talking, has a beautiful blood pressure, beautiful heart rate, beautiful lung sounds, looks perfectly good, except he's got tearing pain in his belly, radiating to his back, and you, you suspect a, a triple A. And that guy, any minute now, kaboom. He's gone, right? Or she's gone. So should scare the crap out of you Um, so if they've got a pulsatile mass um, I stay away from it now if you're lying next to someone naked uh, they're naked on their back um, and you're looking at their abdomen because you're a paramedic now and you're attentive to everything that's going on um, you may notice you should notice their aorta pulsating with every pulse you should see a subtle movement of their belly going up and down now if you're in a new relationship, I would be really cautious about what the things that you stare at because I could end badly for you, right? But mm-hmm. but you know, if they're asleep and they don't notice, just look at their aorta or or ask them if you can palpate it. You know, um, look at their look at their neck veins, look at their hand veins, all those watch sorts of aorta, don't worry. Yeah, I'm just God, I love your aorta. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, uh, so you should know the difference between a normal pulsating uh, aorta and a, a, like a more visible pulsatile aorta, right? Because if I'm assessing someone, I'm not, you know, let's get into bed together, lie on your back so I can look over sideways. It's they're sitting up and I'm looking at it this way. And if I see it this way, it's probably much more uh, um, visible than it would be just a healthy aorta. Uh, yeah yeah because what's happening right is in a in an abdominal aortic aneurysm so you have got this aorta down here which normally uh, bifurcates into the uh, iliac arteries uh, but in an aneurysm you've got this happening it's distended and it's going down like that so it's big so it protrudes and it protrudes, and it's pulsatile, AAA. So it's, it's almost like it's back there? Well, this, uh, this wall of the aorta has become weakened, so it's ballooned out. Um, <coughs> trying to think of an analogy. Sometimes bicycle tubes would do that. Old chi- tire in, old car tire inner tubes used to do that. They'd bulge out if it was a worn worn out part of the, the tread. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's a fair question. If there's discoloration, uh, they're probably already bleeding, so it would be that much more urgent. Um, let's just say I've never seen a AAA with discoloration, um, but you can get discoloration from intra-abdominal bleeding in the flank here in different places. So if you see that, uh, then you have to ask yourself: Is that from bl- direct trauma? You know, is there's. External swelling, or is that from internal hemorrhage? Yeah. Sorry, I got another question. Yeah, yeah, no worries. <laughs> uh, so that's a great question, right? So if you have a triple A, and again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, I'm still talking about secondary assessments. I'll get into those things as we go, but I'll address that question anyway. So if you've got, um, oftentimes, what happens is. Um, you get blood dissecting from the inner layer to the middle layers. And sometimes that dissection can happen down one of the iliac crests. And so when we examine the lower legs, one of the things we do if we suspect a AAA is we feel for a pedal pulse on the foot. Uh, We look for color and cap refill in the foot. And if it's like there's prolonged cap refill or diminished pulse in one foot compared to the other, that's just additional information to suggest that, yeah, perhaps you are dealing with a AAA uh, aortic dissection down the iliac artery yes yeah yeah i would always check the feet for sure so when we're looking at uh in medical calls when we're looking at the legs we're typically looking for things like swelling of the ankles soa okay. uh, or foot edema right is there edema in the lower leg and edema in the lower leg can be a localized issue, can be a clot in the leg, or uh, edema in both the legs could be suggestive of chronic heart failure, um, chronic right-sided heart failure. And chronic right failure, heart right, right-sided heart failure, almost always is a sequela to uh, chronic left-sided heart failure. Um, but again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to be talking about heart failure later in more detail, so don't have a cerebral... Um, aneurysm over this stuff (laughs) we'll get to that and then we look for surgical scars and usually ask about a surgical history you know have you ever had any surgery Um, if they've if they've had surgery and had their appendix removed and they've got right lower quadrant pain it's probably not appendicitis if they've had their appendix already removed, right Um, so that stuff is helpful the history so we'll do a chief complaint and history presenting illness or injury Uh, for medical calls Uh, you know I'll ask a a broad question like what made you decide to call for an ambulance today you got to be careful about how you um, ask questions too so you don't you're not putting them on the defensive you know even if you think you know this guy doesn't look sick why the hell did he call for the ambulance what doesn't matter you're being paid by the hour we're not here to judge Um, and uh, when you judge and you treat them in a condescending way or make them feel bad for calling the ambulance the next time when they have something genuinely life-threatening they're less likely to call you because they you know felt they were treated disrespectfully so uh, so for example uh, you know this is kind of a calm thing but but uh, I try to avoid asking questions like why uh, it's it's uh, subtler just to say something like how come over why like why puts people on the defensive so uh, what made you decide to call for the ambulance today. Now, a lot of patients you're going to encounter will have had something going on for several days. And so you might be thinking, well, you know, why didn't you call us three days ago? Well, people don't, right? They don't want to be a burden to the system. They didn't think it was that bad. They thought they were going to cover lots of reasons uh, why they don't call three days ago when you think they should have called three days ago. It just happens that way. Just accept it, don't judge. Um, But I will ask questions like, uh, I'll I'll give you a prime example. Someone's short of breath. So I talk to them and uh, one of the ways I sort of measure their distress level is if they're speaking in full sentences, not too bad. If they're speaking in five, six words, maybe moderately distressed. If they're speaking two to three word dyspnea, then they're in pretty moderate to severe distress. If, two, if they've got two to three-word dyspnea, and they're drowsy, or they're, they have uh, an altered mental status, then it's life-threatening to deal with it right away. But let's take the mild distress. So I got a patient, um, he's got a history of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, he's, I, I say to him, you know, uh, how long have you been having difficulty breathing? Uh, he'll say, started about four days ago. Don't even start with, why didn't you call us four days ago? Just don't ask that question. Uh, and so, but uh, what, I would, what I do want to know is, um, has it been getting worse over time? And he might say, um, no, it hasn't been getting worse. And so I might ask, reasonably so, um, what prompted you to call today? Uh, and he'll often say, or they'll often say, it's just been going on for some time and it's not getting any better. And, and I'll ask about sleep, you know, have you been able to sleep at night? And that gives me another indication of how bad things are. Like, uh, you know, they might say, I was able to sleep a couple of nights ago, you know, the first two nights, but I've had very little sleep and uh, the night after, and last night I didn't sleep at all, right? So oftentimes when, d- when you're dealing with a medical condition, it's just, it's reached the point where they just can't take it anymore, or they suddenly realize yeah, this is worse than I thought, and I'm probably not gonna get better. Uh, We see that a lot with patients with pneumonia, right? They don't want to go to the hospital uh, for, you know, a cough and a little bit of fever. They don't want to be a burden, and that's not unreasonable. Um, So, you know, we just want to get a sense of how long this has been going on, has it been getting worse, or has it just been steady but they haven't been able to get some sleep. Um, And we'll do some education as well. Not education in the form of a lecture, but we'll do some education, like, I'll say to them in the back of the ambulance so so look you know if this ever happens again if you have a cough and you feel a little warm or feverish if you feel short of breath with it at all get some medical attention go to a walk-in clinic or call us but anytime you feel unwell with a cough or a fever and you're having difficulty breathing call us right we're happy to come we work 24-7 don't hesitate. And I'll talk to the wife or the husband as well. And sometimes, you know, when, when we deal with stubbornness, I'll say things like I'll say to the husband, Look, um, I'm going to tell your wife if this happens again, she's to call us. And no arguments between you two, and you can talk with us when we get there, right? Uh, because she's worried about you. Oh, she worries so much. She always worries all the time, blah, blah, blah. And she overreacts. Well, <laughs> to which I'll say well look this is serious like this has been going on for four days and it's not getting better and the longer you know you wait to seek medical attention the worse it gets and the harder it is to treat so she did the right thing by calling us and I'll assure you, you did absolutely the right thing don't ever hesitate to call us and I'll tell families too like if you um, if you're feeling indecisive should I call should I not call just call us we're happy to come you know, so. Uh, so what made you decide to call today? Um, um, what's bothering you the most? Those are the things we wanna know. And then uh, for pain in particular, we use an OPQRST approach. Have you, did you talk about OPQRST? Okay, OPQRST is really valuable. This is one of the most important pieces of your history taking tools. And um, so I'm gonna go over that. And we'll do past medical history, meds and allergies, last meal, risk factors. So what are some examples of risk factors? Smoking, illicit drug use, alcohol abuse. You know, and I'll ask people, are, you know, I'll ask them point blank, are you an alcoholic? And they'll either say yes, or they'll say, they'll say no. And, and then I'll ask them, you know, how much do you drink per day? Um, And they can tell me how much they drink per day. uh, And in my head, I might be thinking, you're an alcoholic, but that's not my job, right? I'm not going to say you're an alcoholic. Uh, I'm just going to register that in my head as a risk factor and report that to the nursing staff. Um, uh, If there's any, it doesn't hurt to ask about. Urination and bowel movements at any time, but in particular, there's any problem with the abdomen, any abdominal discomforts, uh, if they're having trouble with one thing, not the other, ask about the other. so we 'll ask about bowel movements. <coughs> Have your bowel movements been normal lately? you're having bowel movements um, urination I 'll ask about several things. so I want to know about urination. are you are you peeing normally? Um, are you peeing more frequently less frequently uh, are you having any pain with you pee any difficulty when you pee um, so I want to know a bunch of different things when it comes to urination the other term for urination is micturation I'll just spell that out just cuz there are never enough terms to learn and I know you guys really love medical terminology mic duration. Now, I use layman's terms with the patient, right? I won't say, you know, how's your mic duration? This is just looking at me like, buddy, speak English. Uh, But uh, I'll just say, you know, are you peeing okay? Any urgency to pee? Any frequency? Are you peeing more often? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I just have a question in terms of, if someone has um, a bunch of diagnoses and is on a bunch of medications, should yep. they have something to just give to a paramedic? Yeah, oftentimes they do. They have a list. Um, <coughs> we take the meds with us. We'll put them all in a bag and take yeah. them with us. Um, part of the trouble with the list, too, is uh, the list. The pharmacy often gives you a list that has the current meds plus the meds they've been taking for the last 20 years, which is a bit of a problem. So you've got to look at the dates make sure you've got the current meds. We like to bring the meds with us because um, you know, the physician and the nurse will want to look at the meds and not know the <laughs> dose and the frequency, um, how often they take those meds. So it's worth taking with us. And the meds tell you a lot about the medical history. Most people don't know their medical history. Um, you know, Sometimes you ask them, do you have high blood pressure? They'll say no. And then you see they're on high blood pressure meds. So I see you're on three medication for high blood pressure. Um, and they'll say, "Yeah," but in their mind, their perception is, "I don't have high blood pressure because it's being treated. My blood pressure is good, right?" So, you know, don't think they're being cocky with you or anything. It's just it's perception. Uh, but uh, people sometimes know the basics. Like, if I ask someone if they're diabetic, they usually know. And then we'll get into details there. So the OPQRST, um, the uh, um, so we want to know the onset. When did it start? Uh, what was happening at the onset? W- so were they resting? Were they walking? Were they running? Were they lifting something? Uh, were there any contributing factors? You know, did um, uh, they f- they uh, they fell because of dizziness? They had shortness of breath because of exposure to an allergen, that sort of thing. Uh, what provokes and palliates? That's P. What makes it worse or better? And by the way, you don't have to do it in that order: O, P, Q, or I never do it in exactly that order. But is there anything that makes it worse? Makes it better? Uh, so before we start examining them with our hands we'll ask them things like um, so you've got some abdominal pain Uh, is there anything that makes it worse changing positions sitting up lying down uh, and they might say if I lie on my side it feels better if I sit up or lie on my back it's more painful Uh, that's relevant what palliates it so for example um, gallstones uh, might be provoked by eating ice cream cheesy pizza Uh, sometimes palliated by belching Um, so we ask what what makes it worse what makes it better quality we want to know we want to hear in their words um, how do they describe it and this gets difficult sometimes you know so they've got chest pain or chest discomfort, and I'll ask, can you describe it for me, what does it feel like? And some people will t- say, you know, quite clearly, it feels like something heavy on my chest, or it feels like something squeezing my chest, or it feels like a sharp pain, sharp pain. Uh, but then some people just have no idea how to describe it. And only then, after they've struggled for the words themselves, will I prompt it with things like, well, um, does it feel heavy? No, does it feel... Um, deep or shallow? Does it feel like it's on the surface? Or does it feel deep? It feels deep. Does it feel like it's tearing or achy? Yeah, I guess it's more of an ache. Um, so sometimes you have to problem. But ideally you want their words, right? Because it's their perception. Um, region of radiation. So you want to know where it is. And this is usually one of the first things I ask, is uh, where is your discomfort or where is your pain? Uh, can you point to it for me? Um, you know particularly back pain um, you know if, if they're having back pain um, you know Emma says I have lower back pain I'll say can you point on my back where it hurts and she'll just point you know upper back lower back or whatever or she'll point to the side so it tells me maybe it's muscular if it's off to the side of the spine I had an 81 year old who uh, I did that with and she grabbed my ass <laughs> and uh, You know at my age nobody grabs my ass anymore so uh it was quite a shock to me um and when i turned around she had this big grin on her face and her her daughter was laughing and uh the best part was we took her to the hospital and and i was working with this guy ian and um we put her in a bed in the hallway and we were about to leave and the doc went up to see the patient i said i said ian let's not hang on a sec the doc's going to see the patient so he went up to her and he did the exact same thing he said show me where right here hurts." So he turned around and she grabbed his ass and ian and i are killing ourselves laughing This is the funniest thing but at my age when an 80 year old flirts with you i'll take that it's good for me It's just a flirt. I'm not uh, thinking anything beyond that. Just chill your, you know, chill. (laughs) That's gross. Um, (laughs) I'm not thinking I'm going to come back later and ask her out. Um, So uh, uh, radiation. So does the pain go anywhere? Um, Abdominal pain in particular, you've there are a lot of nerves that innervate the abdominal organs and so you can have referred pain far away from uh, from uh, the actual pathology so for example splenic pain if you've injured your spleen uh, one of the signs is shoulder tip pain they call that KERS sign K-H-E-R apostrophe S KERS sign. so shoulder pain in left upper quadrant uh, abdominal injury is quite common um, when you have appendicitis, typically the pain starts in the periumbilical umbilical area uh, and then migrates to the halfway point between the umbilicus and the, the iliac crest here, and they call that McBurney's point. So you get referred pains with uh, uh, the abdomen, uh, very common, referred pain with chest. Someone's having a heart attack, classically chest pain, and pain waiting to the arm or the neck, the jaw. You've heard this before, right? People go to the dentist because they got jaw pain. Turns out they're having a myocardial infarction. So um, we wanna know, does the pain go anywhere? Or do you have pain anywhere else, right? Um, Severity, how bad is it? So we get them to rate it on a 10 scale, one being almost no pain at all, 10 being the worst pain imaginable. That's how I describe it, uh, worst pain imaginable. And um, um, the scale, the, the, the severity scale, doesn't give us really much in the way of information about whether this is benign or really serious because the 10 scale is very subjective, right? Um, some people, everything is a 10 and they're gonna tell me it's a 10, and okay, it's a 10, and we're gonna treat it and we'll see if we bring it down with some pain medication. Um, and then I get patients who look really stoic, don't look like they're in pain at all, and ask them, you know, how bad is your chest pain? And they'll say it's a nine. And, you know, the, their facial expression and what they're telling me is a nine, or not consistent, and so that's always a little bit alarming. But that's important, right, to get that perception. Some people just they hide it well, or they tolerate it well, or they you know just don't want anyone to know. And then we want to know about time. So we want to know: is the pain constant, or is it intermittent? Um, how long has it been going on? How long has the pain and the symptoms been going on? Um, abdominal pain, which is constant, usually means um, things like liver, spleen, kidneys, uh, and pain that's intermittent or comes and goes is usually peristaltic. So peristalsis is the movement of stuff through your GI tract. You get this wave-like motion. So, uh, so uh, pain that comes and goes or that's intermittent or comes in waves is usually uh, some sort of peristaltic uh, issue. Constant pain is a little more worrisome talk about that more details later and then we look for associated signs and symptoms and pertinent negatives so things that don't exist that you would expect to exist Um, so um, someone's got abdominal pain from a suspected AAA Um, would you expect them to be sweaty if someone had a abdominal aortic aneurysm and it was life-threatening would you expect them to be sweaty they'll typically be sweaty because they'll get a sympathetic response. It'll be a fight or flight response. They'll be scared. When you're in pain and you're really scared, you break out in a sweat, right? So I expect them to be sweaty. That would be a pertinent, that would be uh, an associated sign. Um, They might be pale. That would be an associated sign. Um, They might be a little short of breath. That would be an associated symptom, right? right? If you're bleeding or you've got a big aneurysm, you're probably gonna be a little short of breath. You're having a heart attack, you may be short of breath. Even though there's nothing wrong with your lungs, you may feel short of breath because your heart's not getting enough oxygen. That would be an associated symptom. Uh, So pale, cool, diaphoresis, those would be associated signs. Uh, Pertinent negatives would be um, they've got abdominal pain, uh, but their bowel movements are fine, their urination's fine that would be pertinent negatives. So I would report that, I would record that on my uh, EPCR. Those would be pertinent negatives. Uh, history, so there's a the sample history. I'm, I'm not a big fan of these uh, mnemonics or these, um, these mnemonics, uh, but you'll use the sample history in the lab and um, uh, they're memory aids, right? Uh, so this particular mnemonic, I won't test you on. I won't ask you what does sample stand for. I just don't believe in testing that sort of thing, because some people use mnemonics, helps them remember, some people don't. And uh, so sample would be symptoms, current symptoms, A for allergies, M for medications, P for past mental history, L for when did they last eat. Right? Um, and uh, not important to me. But be careful not to use mnemonics when you're talking to other people giving a report on patients <laughs> so uh, you can't go to a triage nurse and say their sample was normal or their sample was negative um, because sample is just a mnemonic right or you know i wouldn't expect you to say to me sample was good like what the hell's sample not everyone knows what sample is not every health provider uses sample it's just a memory aid right just keep that in mind so if it if it helps you to remember stuff great but uh, other than that and then um, E would be events preceding the incident also known as history presenting illness or injury um, so history of presenting illness the OPQRC opiocurs- covers the signs and symptoms for most of the HPI for medical calls uh, example, you know what were you doing at the time when the chest pain started? Well, they were on a treadmill and the ch- started to develop chest pain, or they were sitting watching Netflix they developed chest pain. Um, what they're watching is irrelevant. Um, we really just want to know at rest or exertion, you know running or sitting on the coach couch walking to the r- fridge is not really exertion, but i would it would go into my story, I would say. Know, patient got up from the sofa to walk through the fridge and it had a sudden onset of eight out of ten chest pressure radiating to his left arm you know so uh, the nurse knows the doc knows that this was mild exertion it just this was when it happened right? didn't happen on the treadmill didn't happen while he's bench pressing uh, didn't happen while he was in his you know triathlon um, Do you remember if you were sitting or, um, you know, fainting. We'll talk about fainting. The the medical term for fainting is syncope, S-Y-N-C-O-P-E, syncope. It would be relevant to find out if they were standing or sitting when they fainted. Um, What position do you think most people are in when they faint? Standing. Standing, yeah, most people are standing, usually outside on a hot day or at a church or at a wedding or... Um, something like that and they're standing and what happens is um, your blood tends to pool in your legs and sometimes you have something called a vasovagal episode where your vagus nerve becomes stimulated and it causes your heart rate to drop your blood pressure to drop and your lack of blood to your head and you faint right so um, you know if you're standing for long periods of time it's important to squeeze your leg muscles to get blood going up to the core so it'd be a little unusual to faint from a sitting position so somebody faints from a sitting position is a little more alarming to me I worry more that they had an irregular heartbeat or something you know uh, unusual Um, have you had a cough or fever uh, before uh, uh, and or before uh, you became short of breath for motor vehicle collisions, we want to know, you know roughly what time it happened. Were they the driver, passenger, front seat, back seat, ejected? Were they a pedestrian? Uh, were they seat belted, unbelted? Was the airbag deployed? What was the speed of travel? Was it head on, broadsided, other? How much damage, intrusion there is? This is all part of the history of presenting injury. Uh, do you remember the crash? You know, If they don't remember the crash, maybe they lost consciousness. Uh, I'll ask them, do you know if you lost consciousness? If they say, I don't know, uh, I'll say, do you remember the crash? And if they say, yeah, I remember everything, then they didn't lose consciousness. But if they don't have a clear recall, then they may have lost consciousness. So <coughs> to, the, to the triage nurse, I'll say, you know, uh, may have lost consciousness. He has no recall of the event. Yeah. Um, so any LOC, uh, any deaths on the scene. Now, this is for you to determine. You're not going to, you know, ask the guy in the car, anyone die here, you know, it's like I don't know. you, f- you tell me. Um, that's for you <laughs> to determine, right? Um, uh, history of presenting injuries. So for example, fall, what time did it happen? How high was it? Uh, were they standing? Was it st- uh, s- from a standing position? Was it down some stairs? How many stairs? Uh, that's the hashtag there is number of stairs. Uh, was it trip and fall, meaning mechanical? Were they pushed? Uh, or was it medical? So was, was there a precipitating event? Did they feel dizzy and felt? Like, do you remember what happened before you fell or how come you fell? Did they faint? Did they have palpitations? Did they have shortness of breath? <coughs> we checked blood sugar. Did they have a low blood sugar? Um, so you could be at a construction site, for example, for a fall. And uh, you get there and there's a construction worker who's uh, fell three floors and is unconscious with a head injury. Uh, you can assume they've got a head injury, but I'm gonna check blood sugar anyway because I wanna know if it was a precipitating event, right? So after I manage airway, breathing, circulation, get them in the back of the ambulance, I'm gonna do a quick check of the blood sugar uh, because maybe they were hypoglycemic and that caused them to act irrationally and they undid their harness or something and fell. You know, People act, uh, irrationally when they get low blood sugar. Uh, medical history, so we wanna ask open <coughs> questions. You know, Are you, Do you have any medical condi- conditions you're being treated <coughs> for? Um, and um, hopefully they'll tell you, but your, the medication will reveal a lot more information. So I may ask specific questions. You ever had heart problems or heart disease? Uh, ever had a heart attack? Ever had a stroke? Are you a diabetic? Um, do you have ulcers? Ever had any bleeding in your belly? Uh, do you have high blood pressure? And again, remember that, you know, they could be on three high blood pressure meds, and their perception is they don't have high blood pressure. Any previous surgeries, I can rule out certain problems. Medications, so medications tell you, um, give you insight into what their medical problems are. Uh, You know, if I see they're on allopurinol, I'll say, I'll say, oh, I see you're on allopurinol. Do you have gout? And they'll say, oh yeah, I have gout. Um, I see you're on metformin. You're a diabetic? No, that's my wife's metformin. Uh, I'm not a diabetic. So you got to ask those questions, right? Um, antibiotics are the big one. Um, I see you're on antibiotics. Are, were these prescribed recently? No, they were prescribed six months ago. I, I'm not taking them anymore. So you got to ask those questions. Or yes, I was prescribed those three days ago for a, a cough and a fever. Uh, antibiotics, check the dates. What are they taking them for? Uh, ask someone collect the meds, put them in a bag. Allergies, they have allergies to medication, to food, right? Because some, there's some uh, medications that are food-based uh, that can cause allergies, uh, or allergic reactions, rather. Any environmental allergies. Any sensitivities or adverse reactions to drugs. Oftentimes, people say they have allergies to a certain drug, but it's not really an allergy, it's just a sensitivity to it. Uh, so you want to ask those questions. Uh, current health status and risk factors you know look at the current meds and OTC meds um, do they have comorbidities right so a trauma patient who has lung disease will do less well than a trauma patient who is completely otherwise healthy Right. so um, so we anticipate worse outcomes Uh, risk factors for disease, family history, (coughs) substance abuse, immunizations up to date, occupational environment factors, we look at all those things. Uh, Vital signs, so SpO2 first I talked about. Uh, BP, heart rate, volume, rhythmicity, respirations, volume, rhythmicity. Um, Now, I'll just tell you that for breathing, respiratory rate, for breathing, everybody breathes regularly. When they're talking, they're not breathing regularly, but we still say regular. So this is not like your heartbeat. Sometimes you have irregular heartbeats. That's not uncommon, very common in the elderly especially. But it's very rare that someone would have an irregular breathing pattern unless they were uh, having a big stroke or had a big head injury or had a big tumor in their head. So it's very unusual to have irregular respirations. So with the exception of those things, I would document respirations regular, even if you think they're irregular. They're not irregular. They're, they're only irregular if they've got something major going on that would cause um, alteration in the respiratory center of the brain. Okay? Otherwise, it's regular. Because if I were a doc looking at a medic's form and it said respiration's irregular that would be an instant red flag i'd go over to the bedside immediately talk to the nurse and say uh you know this form says the patient's got irregular respirations what going what's going on and if they're awake and talking they don't have irregular respirations (coughs) pupils so we check pupils for size and equality and reactivity to light we'll talk about pupil changes uh when we talk about head injury and stroke but Particularly head injury. Um, You know, one people may be larger than the other. Um, Some people normally have one people larger than the other, but uh, head injury can do that too. Uh, And then ECG, temperature, and um, uh, glucose only when indicated. So anyone who's has an altered mental status or had an altered mental status is going to get a blood sugar. So if they fainted, they're going to get a blood sugar. If they were dizzy <coughs> at one time, they're going to get a blood pressure. If they're dizzy right now, they're going to get a uh, sorry uh, a glucometry. They're going to get a blood glucose level on blood pressure. So if al- any altered mental status before you got there or when you're there, they're going to get a blood sugar. Of course, they're going to get bl- bl- blood pressure, but blood sugar. Um, so. Uh, any altered level of awareness or altered mental status um, we do capillary blood glucose ECG rhythm Uh, 12-lead ECG we do for select patients we'll talk about that later Uh, measuring exhaled carbon dioxide we'll do that for select patients we'll talk about that later and then there's a pre-hospital stroke assessment we do uh, which we'll talk about uh, later as well so we talked about sorry I just want to get through these slides we talked about differential right you know what a differential is it's a list of Uh, conditions that might explain the patient's current signs and symptoms. So should be a list of five to ten, ten's probably on the high side, maybe five, six, or seven uh, in your mind. So chest pain could be a myocardial infarction, could be angina, could be pneumonia, could be pneumothorax, could be a pulmonary embolism, could be an aneurysm, could be cancer, could be uh, pleuritic pain, could be uh, pleural effusion, could be a whole bunch of things. And then we try to narrow that down to something that uh, makes the most sense. We may not always be able to narrow it down to a provisional diagnosis, but we narrow it down to something that's uh, treatable. And um, so we look at the chief complaint, the history, the T, vital signs. Uh, those are the key to a differential and to a provisional diagnosis. And um, as I say, we don't always uh, develop a provisional diagnosis. Um, and we frequently don't convey Uh, our suspected provisional diagnosis. Um, So I'll give you an example. Got a 71-year-old male. He's had a cough and fever for three days. Um, I see him, I take a history, he's got a fever. Um, He tells me he has a productive cough, he coughs up stuff, I ask him to describe it. He says it's just yellowish, so that's not (coughs) too alarming. I listen to his chest and his chest sounds a little, wheezy I can hear some some musical sounds from the bronchioles being constricted I can also hear a little bit of fluid in one area of his lung on the right side of his right lung but not on the left side and um, so in my mind I'm thinking pneumonia is high up on my differential diagnosis but I'm not going to go into the hospital or put on my chart query pneumonia there's no need to do that And you don't want to create a bias in the mind of someone else what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna I'm gonna describe to the triage nurse and receiving nurse exactly what I found you know this is this is George he's a 71 year old he's been feeling unwell for the last three days he developed a cough and a fever three days ago he says the cough is now productive and he feels a little more short of breath today Um, he's febrile temperature 39 and um, uh, he hasn't seen anyone about this uh, cough or fever. When I auscultated his lungs, he had a wheeze and he had some, um, some crackles in the right base. And so we gave him some Ventolin. So I've said everything about the patient. and I know that was a lot of information I just gave you. I've said everything about the patient without actually saying, I think he's got pneumonia. Right? But the nurse knows from the description and the doc is gonna know from my description and her description. Um, uh, so I'm not really giving a provisional diagnosis, but we're gonna be on the same page, right? And the nurse isn't gonna look at me and say, what do you think it is, Rob? Mm. Yeah. Uh, we just don't, that exchange of, doesn't happen, just doesn't happen, we, you know, we just, uh, uh, if, we, if we wanna know what it is, they'll do an x-ray, you know, they'll look for something more definitive. Okay, so quiz. Um, when do you like the spelling <laughs> when might you do an RTS and wow what is wrong with me <laughs> maybe my H was stuck on my keyboard <laughs> when might you do an RTS and why hang on a sec we'll, just, we'll let you guys talk about it yeah one word really trauma. trauma okay good let me just um, correct this H. All right. so yeah severe trauma and uh, to decide whether it's a load and go prior to a secondary exam that would be why. okay next question how does your exam differ between trauma and a medical patient